1: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
3: When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money, but are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today.
4: Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio.
5: This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Rachel Yehuda on this special bonus episode of Family Secrets. Can you explain for the listener, I think epigenetics is now like this word that gets tossed around a lot that I think a lot of people don't understand in terms of just what the term means.
6: So epigenetics refers to the study of how genes are regulated. And that is a very broad category. And epigenetics describes a lot of things that make a lot of sense once you think about them. So, for example, every cell has the exact same number of genes in it. And your genes are very different than someone else's genes. That is the basis for looking at your genetic code and for searching for your ancestors you're going to have a unique set of genes and you're probably going to be able to figure out who has some of those genes and that they're related to you right but when you start out in life you start out as a single cell right so two gametes or sex cells and a sperm unite and form a zygote and the way that you develop is that that from that very single cell That cell keeps dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing, dividing dividing, right? Now, at some point, those cells need to differentiate. They have the recipe through your genes for everything that needs to happen over the next few months. So contained within each and every cell is the code for differentiating that cell into a skin cell or a liver cell or a brain cell or a heart cell. Now, how does the how do those cells know what cells they should be? Well, it's because of epigenetic mechanisms that switch genes on and off, allowing for developmental processes to occur. so so epigenetics was first described in 1940s, even before we knew the structure of DNA or could even look at epigenetic marks. Because when you think about development, there had to have been something that explains how these cells differentiate. But what became new in kind of much later than that in the 1990s, in the late 1990s, was the idea that it's not just an inner program that um, causes epigenetic marks to regulate genes, the environment also can contribute to gene regulation by also permitting under certain circumstances, different epigenetic marks on the gene so that the environment then becomes a really important factor because it too has the potential to result in epigenetic changes that change the way your genes function.
5: It's so mind-blowing. I mean, it, it, it blew my mind the first time I heard you speak of, of, about it, and it, it continues to blow my mind because it just it expands so much of what makes us us.
6: But it makes so much sense because we are our memories and we are our lived experiences. And when you have a conversation that is restricted to genetics, you're discounting the things that make us us. And you just have to look at someone that has lost their memory to know that we're more than our genes, right? We're we're about our lived experiences and our lived experiences change us. And epigenetics just really offers that language or the mechanisms that allow us to understand how that happens. And it does make sense. Now, of course, it's complicated. Everything always is what cells, what um, genes exactly are subject to epigenetic regulation and under what conditions, it can get very scientifically wonky. But the big picture view here is that the things that happen to us change us and the things that we decide should happen to us will also change us. And this is actually a very hopeful thing. Um, And Not only do epigenetic mechanisms help us understand kind of very important questions, certainly the question I had going in about the low cortisol, which was, why do effects of trauma endure? Um, Stress theory will have you believe that after you mount a fight or flight response, it takes a little while, but your body kind of equilibrates and goes back to what it was we call this in the textbooks achieving homeostasis biologic homeostasis so your stress hormones aren't activated a few hours after a trauma your heart's not pounding in your chest anymore as it was when you were confronted with terror everybody who's had the experience of terror knows that eventually your heart rate goes back down right so That's why stress and stress theory has all these mechanisms to explain why that happens with cortisol being center stage as one of the hormones that helps you shut down the sympathetic nervous system response to stress. So my question was, well, why 20 years later are you still affected by something that happened in the past? What is the biological mechanism of that? It's got to be a different biologic mechanism than the mechanism that is associated with fight or flight. Now, it took me 20 years to make that (laughs) conclusion. Um, But again, you know, you asked earlier on when you see data that don't um, fit with your theory, like what do you do? Do you just accept your data as foolproof? No, you fight like hell against (laughs) the data because we like to prioritize our theories, right? We want our data to prove our ideas, not the other way around. And we will hold on to an idea almost at any cost. It takes a very, very long time when someone puts out there the idea that PTSD is a continuation of the stress response, right? We have another idea, which is, no, the stress response is over, but then the event took a life of its own in your mind, aided by your biology. Because that's what actually happens. And that this, you know, when we think this is a mental process, we don't also think that there's a simultaneous biologic process going on with our mental process, but there is. And so, again, years down the road, and then also there's, you know, the snowball that keeps gathering more snow as it continues to be rolled down the mountain, right? Other things happen. And it's a dynamic process. So here you are much later, and you're a sum of all the things that have happened to you. And, that, and you have kind of biologic mechanisms that have been helping you cope and adapt, and sometimes have been also increasing your vulnerability to um, environmental insults, and maybe even increasing your vulnerability to mood and anxiety disorders.
5: We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets.
3: HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. This is it
0: your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
5: I'm also thinking about what you're describing is the brain and and, and the biology, and I'm thinking about the body, and you know, I'm thinking about it as someone who's a long, 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 long time yoga practitioner and the way that it seems that stories, which is the way that I think because I'm a writer, continue to live in the body. They feel lodged, you know, like in yoga if you do a hip-opener, and if you sit in it for long enough, one will start to cry. Why? You know, where is that coming from?
6: That's that's a a beautiful thing to point out about yoga, identifying that things are lodged in the body. But what yoga also allows you to do is move energies around, and especially some forms of yoga are much better at that than others. But the most important part of yoga, and I, I am also someone that loves to do yoga is that yoga is about the breath and the breath is about the moment and the moment's not about the past and being able to control your breath in the moment is the way that you prove to yourself that you can disconnect from something unpleasant for the moment and in a moment and also be able to accommodate it um, when you come back to it. So, Yes, our bodies, our cells, I like to say, are carrying memories for us, some of which we may actually end up transmitting in some way. But we carry these memories because it's important to carry them. It's important to learn from experience. How else would we learn if we couldn't carry something permanent that outlives the event with us? But what's equally important is to not be dominant. By those lessons, to have control over them as opposed to them having control over us or hijacking us back to the past and back to a time when we feel when we felt helpless or vulnerable. So the idea is to carry trauma memories forward, be in complete acknowledgement and peace with them, and understand that the formation of new memories through new experiences will help contextualize those prior experiences and allow us to grow, not only despite traumatic experiences, but maybe sometimes also because of them.
5: Mm. That's beautiful. Um, It's actually a perfect segue to talk about the the new work that you're doing, but before we do, I just want to go back to epigenetics for one more question which again has to do with my my own experience of discovering your work while i was dealing with really the question of literally who who am i if i'm not who i'm not made of biologically who i thought i was and there's this whole world of people that i who who i don't know who actually you know my biological father was a total stranger and his his family his, his ancestors my ancestors in fact um, were such a complete abrupt shift in the narrative that I had always understood. And I wondered regarding epigenetics and the environments and the memories and the lived experiences of ancestors, how far How far does that go back?
6: Well, nobody knows that for sure. But what what seems to have been, you know, I've, I've read Inheritance, which I thought was one of the most beautiful books I've read in a long time, and also, um, just looking at some of the other things that you're writing about, I mean, there's no way you could really claim you're not your father's daughter, that is, the father who raised you. Your sensibilities, <laughs> um, your affectations, your, you know, how you deal with with your upbringing and Judaism and spirituality. I mean, the shock of learning that those weren't his genes Makes the point (laughs) that the environment he created for you was so powerful to your identity. Because it's not like you woke up and, and realized, oh, actually, I'm not, I must not be Jewish. I don't feel Jewish anymore. I mean, you didn't necessarily feel a denial of who you are through your upbringing, it was just a shock that there was a mismatch between that upbringing and the genes that you always thought were you. But the fact that you might still feel so connected to the father that raised you, I think really does speak to the power of who raised you. And the fact that being raised creates experiences. Those experiences last in us. And those experiences are also available for us to bequeath or to, you know, shape the next generation with. So it is a shock to the system. So how much of the epigenetics of your biological father do you have? It's a really good question um, whether, whether what you have is not just the genes of a sperm donor, but also the lived history of that donor and his ancestral line. So these are some really interesting questions that unfortunately, most people don't get to answer because they don't get to have right. a relationship to learn about all of those things, right? Right, right, right. So it would be a really interesting to be able to see whether you could actually process some of those ancestral memories of a lineage that you only have genetically, as opposed to through culture or family or through those things that matter.
5: Exactly, exactly. And you know, it's so interesting because as you as you said that to me about my dad, um, I I write in inheritance that he has always come to me ever since he passed away as kind of literally a series of chills that move up and down my body and. I'm going into the, from the scientific to the woo-woo right now but it just right? <laughs> it just happened when you when you said that it just happened as I'm sitting here in my mm. basement of my home there it was it just felt like this enormous sort of hug from from the beyond and and the other thing is that I I received an email today from a rabbi who I don't know who was reading my book and he referred in his letter to my father as He said, your spiritual father. And I loved that so much. Um, Um, You know, it was so much better than any other term we have for these things. Social father, adoptive father, you know, all these terms that we have. Spiritual father felt really right. And he also spoke about the Hasidim having um, a way of thinking of certain kinds of secrets as you know, and here I am on my own podcast where I really kind of contend that no secrets are good secrets. He really spoke about secrets that um, where the legacy of them is not pain and trauma and and um, you know kind of a sundering, but rather a, a kind of illuminating. And he actually wrote um, the fact that you got the information that you needed on the second your site, the second anniversary of your father's death is no accident.
6: And I was yeah. like,
5: whoa. It, it's, there's <laughs> there's so much. And I and I don't I don't want to hijack this conversation with my experience, but but it but really I mean I I do feel like I do feel a sense of purpose in the fact that this is my story and that I am who I am and I do what I do and I think the way that I think. To try to understand as much as I possibly can about it, because as you as you said, I can. Um, yeah,
6: yeah. There there is a lot to process. That is more than just what we can do on the surface, because a lot of the facts that we hold in our bodies are not facts that can be spoken. They're not written. They're not words. They're 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 lived experiences that are not nameable or not or not or or maybe ineffable in some ways. So I think that these are a lot of the things that you were really struggling with mm-hmm. in the book and it was very very moving and to me the idea of biology or epigenetics mm-hmm. really being able to record and hold our experiences is so valuable, you know. Mm. Really, it's it's so it's, it's valuable and it's precious and, and it means that what happens to us matters. And it's something that we have known and now we can know in a different way.
5: Yeah, I love that. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets.
3: HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's
0: HealthLock.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
5: I think that really brings us beautifully to. I would love for you to talk a little bit about the work that you're now doing, which is new and exciting and important and very grounded and real and rooted in science um, of this psychedelic assisted therapy and research that you have embarked on.
6: Yes. So this is a very new direction for me, but it Absolutely pertains to the question of intergenerational trauma. Uh, But we just started a center at Mount Sinai that is called the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research because a few years ago, um, I was introduced to the idea that psychedelics may be very helpful for the processing of traumatic events and um, may be very helpful specifically for PTSD. So I'm, you had never done psychedelics and actually thought that it sounded like a crazy idea and at first was very skeptical of it, but as I, as I opened myself up to learn more about this and I did um, the training to become a psychedelic psychotherapist, um, I was profoundly struck by the power of it and I also got to participate as part of the therapist training in an FDA approved study where I too could take the psychedelic in the context of psychotherapy. And it was very meaningful and powerful. And it taught me as much about psychotherapy as it taught me about psychedelics and the real work that has to be done. But what happens in a a psychedelic psychotherapy journey with the right intention and setting, is that people process not only their own experiences, but it's very much in the context of a connection, of being part of a chain, of being linked to the past, and also in my case, since I have children, um, grown-up children, to, to, um, to them. And a lot of people who take psychedelics often talk about the fact that parental traumas come to them. And that they learn things about ancestors, or ancestors speak to them. And depending on the type of psychedelic that they take, this could be very disembodied, um, or it could be more kind of with yourself intact. But almost everyone has this kind of experience that there was this tremendous before about them that matters. And also for those who have children, the after. And seeing fathers or and mothers and grandparents and being able to get reassurance or being told that some of the struggles you're having now I had them, says your maybe grandmother or, or father or grandfather, or you have the wisdom to cope with it, or you know, some secret usually. A very comforting message even if the disclosure is traumatic but the overall experience is that of you can survive this and that you are not alone and that you are part of a universe that holds you and that carries you and you're not like this isolated individual particle but you're part of this network and that your experiences good or bad are part of that network too and so I thought This is a lot better than the treatments we have to offer trauma survivors today. Um, That, you know, work for many people. I don't, I really want to be very careful to not disparage what we currently have. But for many trauma survivors with PTSD, they've had a lot of therapy. They've gone to a lot of um, different kinds of therapeutic approaches. Um, The ones that are most recommended, which are cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and um, antidepressants, um, you know, leave something to be desired. I mean, with a cognitive behavioral therapy, you have to narrate your traumatic experience. and, and many people don't want to do that many, many times because of the avoidance, many times because they get distressed. And so that's not helpful. I mean, if you, if you happen to be someone that did cognitive behavioral therapy and found it helpful, that's great. But a lot of people, Haven't and antidepressants are just not right. I know that they're recommended in the guidelines, um, but unless uh, for many people, they're probably treating a depression or an anxiety disorder that is co occurring with PTSD. PTSD, you got to confront what happened, and sometimes confronting it in an altered state can be very gentle. You have a lot of compassion for yourself. psychedelics often make you want to bond with your therapist more. You feel more trusting. You feel less afraid to confront um, things that might be very painful. So I'm very excited about doing this kind of research and, as always, figuring out why it works. And I actually believe that this will be something that epigenetics explains, the kind of transformation that people report when they do try psychedelic. I want to actually say to your audience that right now these um, treatments are not legal and they will be in the very near future, hopefully. Um, the FDA has given breakthrough status to MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. I think people are working really hard to do the science that will make these um, therapies available legally. And again, uh, participating in research is one way um, that you can get this treatment in a very safe way. And so I wanted to just make sure people know that because if you go to your provider and say, I'd like to try some psychedelics in my therapies, (laughs) they may not be able to offer it to you.
5: Right, right. Um, Yeah. And also one of the things that that you note that I've read is that um, this kind of therapy, when it does become um, legal and more readily available, can can often be a one time or you know a couple of times, as opposed to you know taking antidepressants for the, for you know for years or um, yes. that it's a that it's something that you do that doesn't promote the feeling of oh gosh I can't wait to do that again. It's more of a synthesizing. Um, it's a tool, I guess. It's,
6: it's- it is it is a tool, and that is why I'm so excited about it, because it will really revolutionize mental health. Right now, what we try to do in mental health is we try to dampen symptoms that are problematic. Um, if you're depressed, we can dull you a little bit, so maybe you don't feel it, or same with anxiety, or maybe if you can't sleep, give you a medicine to sleep. And I'm not knocking those things. They can be very, very important to, to people that have those symptoms, but what if you could have an experience that gives you insight? And um, the psychologist Stan Groff said about um, psychedelics that they are to psychiatry what the microscope is to biology and the telescope is to astronomy. And I absolutely love that description because how you make progress in therapy is that you learn how to see something differently. You don't have to keep looking in the microscope and looking in the telescope. And then once you know it, you don't have to keep knowing it all over again. And I've drawn an analogy uh, between a traumatic experience and a psychedelic experience in that both are generally very transformative to people. And so the initial question that I had when I entered the field, which was how can an event that happened in the past Continue to pack so much punch. And the answer to that turned out to be because of the epigenetic changes that occur as a result of that experience that then take on a life of its own. The same could probably be said about psychedelic psychotherapy that it's an event that packs such a punch. But what's important is not only what happens at the moment, fight or flight aspect, that this is, you know, your brain on drugs aspect. But the insights that are then gleaned that you continue to work with, um, but for the positive, and so really we're talking about a very parallel process. And so to me, there is such an aesthetic quality about that that feels so true and so real that when you when you've learned the wrong thing following trauma, the thing that's holding you back. You have to have an experience that will help you learn the right thing, and then you can get back on track or go to a different, better place. And I think that that is what I'm hearing from so many people who have really done this work, and and it just really resonates. So our center is going to be not only about trying to do the clinical trials for trauma survivors, not hopefully not only trauma survivors with PTSD. Um, but also really trying to kind of make the scientific observations where we can understand what the biology of healing and resilience are all about. And this is a narrative that's really been missing from our, our dialogue in psychiatry. We've been talking a lot about you know the biology of depression, the biology of anxiety or eating disorders or, or PTSD. What if The fact that people have those biologic changes doesn't mean that those changes need to be reversed per se, but that a completely different process of healing needs to happen that can really overcompensate for the fact that those changes are present, right? And so I'm drawn to yoga also, um, certainly in the context of trauma, because one of the things that's accomplished with yoga really is to accept your body and also the places that you carry tensions and traumas in your body and be able to just breathe through it and regulate it. So what if healing really involves being able to do things for your body that really helps your body through the tough times that are associated with traumatic reminders or addictions or anxieties or other kinds of things? That have cropped up probably for very good reason, be be they environmental or genetic.
5: I love what you said too about about the experience being as part of a chain. You know that there's a before, that there's a before you, and there's an after you. There's something so expansive about that. That I mean, to me, it feels calming and healing, even to hear that, because it's because there's no question that that's true. There is a before us and there's an after us and to be able to actually access that. It's like it's like increasing the field, like just increasing the energetic field all around us.
6: Look, you're born into a party that's happened without you and <laughs> you party before it's over, and then that's and that's the way it is, right?
5: Right. Rachel Yehuda, this has been such a pleasure and provocative and and just illuminating talking with you. I'm really grateful to you for taking the time and giving so much of yourself. Oh, it was fun
6: for me too. Really, really was. Thank you so much. Thanks for
5: listening to my conversation with Rachel Yehuda. And please keep in mind that season five of Family Secrets will drop on April 1st, with ten all new episodes.
4: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple
1: Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing smart metabolic burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat.